verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back to him a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate, and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant They've torn down your altars and they've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. I pray that God would speak to us through his word. Thank you, Clive. Morning, everybody. I've got a, a couple of um, deep longings, prayer. Uh, rooted in prayer for this service. One is that if there's a black cloud over anyone's life, whether you are watching online or whether you are gathered here in this beautiful old building, that uh, those clouds might be scattered by the grace and love and compassion of a loving God. The second hope I've got is that you don't go home and someone says, how was church? And, they, and you say, the worship was wonderful, but then Clive spoke and we're all depressed. And to be fair to Chris, I need to let you know that he actually gave me a bit of latitude about which text I chose in this series. He was being gracious because it's my first Sunday morning preach since Marilyn, my wife, and I have moved back into the area. And I chose this. I chose this delicate and this difficult subject. And in a sense, it might have been wonderful to, to do, well, the kind of job that you did, Graham, last week, fantastic, about this victory, this mountaintop victory. But where I'm at is not with the great victory on Mount Carmel, but Elijah in the wilderness. And if you look at that piece of artwork, a Victorian piece of artwork by Frederick Layton, 1877 to 1878, it didn't take him 11 years, it might have taken him just over a year. Uh, that's my typo. But actually, if you look at that, you can't even see Elijah's face. You can see the face of the angel, but you can't see Elijah's face. But you can see his body language. He is in absolute distress. 
It's before he gets to the cave. It's not until verses 8 to 9 at Horeb, the mountain of God, in other words, Mount Sinai, that he goes into this cave, a cave, a dark, cold place, a place where there sometimes seems to be no way out, there's no light, there's no sense of hope, it's dank, it stinks. He's already in that cave, metaphorically speaking, in his own experience for some reason we don't fully understand because he's gone from confronting over 400 prophets of Baal and putting them to the sword to fleeing from one woman. Now, I've got to be so careful in these days of political correctness what I say. But I might as well get hung for a sheep as a lamb. I've met some scary women, but the, the point is here, I've met some scary guys too, the point is here, he flees because of Jezebel's words. Let's just look at that briefly. Right at the beginning, let's just go back actually to the last verse of chapter 18. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. It's like the hand of God was upon him in the Hebrew. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Abraham, uh, Ahab sorry, all the way to Jezreel. This is phenomenal. It's supernatural. The hand of the Lord is upon him. The power of the Lord comes to him. And then Ahab tells Jezebel, chapter 19, verse 1, everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah, it says, was afraid, or he saw the situation in the Hebrew. He was afraid, he saw where he was at, and it says something quite surprising after this mountaintop experience. He ran for his life. He just legs it. He runs for his life. And when he comes to Beersheba in Judah, he leaves his servant there and he goes on into a wilderness which Frederick Leighton has depicted, a wilderness of his soul, a wilderness of his experience. He's already in a cave before he ever gets to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Now, anyone ever been in a cave? And I don't mean potholing. Anyone ever been in a kind of a wilderness experience? There's about three or four brave hands and they're going down all the time. It's part of the human condition. And as you'll see as we go on, I don't think Christians are exempt for this. You see, Elijah was ministering in a land of idols. His life is being lived in a land of idols. Well, you know what? We're in a land of idols. We really are in the Western world turning away from the Christian gospel that shaped the West. We're in a land of idols where other things have become more important. And you're almost uh, treated as gullible and naive if you believe in this Christian message. We're in a land of idols. Now, Jezebel is a pretty scary individual, and in Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, there's a church in Thyatira that Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is speaking to these seven churches, and this is a church where Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. But then he goes on in verse 20 of Revelation 2 to say this, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. 
So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. You see, Jezebel has become a type in Scripture. Whether the woman in the church in Thyatira was indeed named Jezebel, this false prophetess who's leading people into untruth and into immorality, sexual immorality flowing out of that untruth, whether that was her name or not is not the point. The point is that this great prophet, Elijah, has put 400 plus of her priests, her false prophets, her evil prophets to the sword. And now he finds himself terrified by her. Why? Well, she worships these little gods. What gods? There's no god except Yahweh, the great I am. There's no other god. But the Bible itself describes these little g-gods as demonic spirits, evil spirits, masquerading as gods. So there's a whole spiritual battle going on here. It's important that we recognize that. What kind of evil would cause Israelites who are supposed to worship the one true God to offer up their firstborn children onto the glowing, hot, outstretched arms of a bronze statue heated by fire called Baal? It's just despicable. It's evil. And in some way we don't fully understand, before he even gets to the cave, is in this cave of depression, he's gone from this Mount Carmel mountaintop victory to an incredibly barren wilderness place. So the first thing I want us to look at is this depression in the cave, this deep discouragement and disillusionment. And look at what the causes are for that for Elijah. Anyone ever been discouraged or disillusioned? Wow, we've got such a strong group of people here. But you are, some of you are managing to nod your head. But, and this is an important point. A lot of Christians never like to admit to that. Do you know Christians are, are, are pretty good at having a lie-in on a Sunday? Did you know that? You thought, what do you mean? We're out here at church. Don't you be telling us off. And that's not aimed at the people online either. Because when we are in a very dark, sad place, sometimes someone says, when they greet us at church, how are you doing? Are you all right? And we go, yeah, I'm fine. You know the thing? That's a Sunday lying for Christians. We lie about how we're feeling sometimes. Perhaps we don't think people really want to know. But he's stretched, he's discouraged and disillusioned because of this criticism and threat. This fear and anxiety that he's experienced. And then the exhaustion, the physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion that comes from this wilderness experience. He's had this huge battle on the mountain. And then he's run with supernatural power. And then he's heard what Jezebel has said. And the criticism and the threat are wrapped up with the fear and the anxiety. And he's absolutely exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Let let me just read verse 4 for us again. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he's left his servant. We'll come back to that. He came to a broom brush. He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's absolutely past it. He's beyond it. He's discouraged. He's disillusioned. He's completely demoralized. And this is perhaps this sense of anticlimax after a decisive victory. Do you know, I was thinking about this this week, um, looking back at last week's message, 
and thinking of that verse particularly in chapter 18, verse 39, when all the people saw this, what? Saw the, the fire of God fall and take up uh, this sacrifice, even though it had been doused with water, even though these evil prophets had tried to intercede and Elijah had taken the mickey out of them. The fire of God falls upon his sacrifice. And in verse 39 of chapter 18, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. An incredible victory. And there's this sense of anticlimax. He goes from Mount Carmel to the wilderness. And it's difficult. You know, I thought about a little bit about that on a personal level. How are some of us doing with retirement? Do you know what I mean? You go from having that sense of purpose, that sense of direction, that sense of achievement, even if it's a bit tough sometimes, to suddenly you've got time on your hands. Mind you, some people say they never knew how they managed to fit work in actually. And there can be an anticlimax. It's a difficult thing for some people to deal with. And he goes, Elijah, from an anticlimax after this decisive victory to thinking it's all going wrong. He ends up with a sense of failure. If we look at, at that last part of verse 4, I'm no better than my ancestors. This great man of God, this great prophet, experiences a sense of failure. And in verse 10, he says, I'm the only one left. He's completely lost his perspective. He's not the only one left, as you'll see next week when Chris brings a message. There's a sense of isolation and loneliness. wonder why he left his servant. It just tells us he left his servant. Do you know what I think? The Bible doesn't tell us. I think he just couldn't stand other human company. I wonder if any of us have ever got to a point where we, we can't face seeing anyone. We can't face getting out of bed on a morning. We literally don't want to see anyone else because it's too painful. So he's isolated. He's lonely. He's in a really difficult place. So as we look again at this great piece of art by the Victorian painter, we see the anguish in the body language of Elijah. We know that he's looked at the circumstances rather than to God. But let's not be blaming Elijah here. Great characters in Scripture have these difficult moments, these incredible moments. And he's taken his eyes in a sense in all of his exhaustion and all of these causes of his discouragement off the God who gave him that great victory on Mount Carmel and he's looked at the circumstances. But this is where Elijah's depression meets God's compassion. Elijah's depression meets God's compassion. We see in verses 5 to 7 that God sends an angel. Let me just read that for us again. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again, presumably for a good long sleep that the angel stands by while Elijah sleeps. And then verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. He's obviously strengthened now. But but what strengthened him? Well, it's the compassion of God. The God who reminds him that he can provide manna from heaven. He can provide bread in the wilderness. I mean, I don't know if you've ever eaten angel bread. I haven't had that joy yet, but I, I bet it knocks Warburton's out the park. I bet it'll be good. 
But you know, I'm not sure it's the bread and the water. That's vitally important. The God who can cause water to come forth from a rock and send bread from heaven and manna and quail and all that kind of thing reminds Elijah of his great deeds. But you know, I think it's the touch of the angel as much as anything else. Do you know there'll probably be some people in contact with you in some way or that you know of, and you might not be aware of this, who have not been touched in months. They've never had the touch of another human being. They've never had a hug. So it was great that one of the things that Gavin said in his wonderful uh, account of Teen Challenge Dorset was that some, one, of the, one of the aspects of ministry, it was there in the bullet point, it's just a hug. I remember an Anglican minister, very angry with me, I can't remember what form, sure it was justified, but he was very angry with me once and he said, your problem, Clive, is that you think a hug solves everything. And I said to him, actually, I don't think a hug solves everything, but I think a hug can help sometimes. Anyone found that? One of the people who responded in the first service, what she needed more than anything else was a hug. And God sends an angel We read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You know, sometimes when you're feeling lonely and isolated, you might not see them, but God might just send an angel. Isn't that an amazing thought? Elijah goes into this place in this cave eventually of deep depression and despair. What what are the characteristics of that? God meets him through the angel with his compassion and his love and his tenderness. God recognizes for Elijah through the angel that the journey is too much for him and that he's in a place of deep depression and despair. What are the characteristics? Let me read a little bit from the World Health Organization. Let's see what they say. Depression's a common mental health issue. Globally, it's estimated that 5% of adults suffer from depression. Depression is characterized by persistent sadness, a lack of interest or pleasure in previously rewarding and enjoyable activities. It can also disturb sleep and appetite. Tiredness and poor concentration are common. The causes of depression include complex interactions between social, psychological, and biological factors. Life events such as childhood adversity, loss, Unemployment can contribute to and may catalyze the development of depression. And the World Health Organization say there are psychological and pharmacological treatments that exist for depression, but it's a significant issue. And the sadness for me is that many Christians, and I know this as a a pastor of over 30 years, they feel guilty as well as depressed. They feel low and they feel, why am I low? Jesus loves me. I'm going to have etern- I've got eternal life, I've got forgiveness, why am I low? And they feel riddled with guilt and shame because they're depressed. Can anyone identify with that? No hands are going to go up now. One nearly did though. In 2020, at the height of the global pandemic, Diana Groover, who's got an MA in theology, wrote a book and it's got a, an interesting title. She wrote a book called Companions in the Darkness, Seven Saints Who Struggled with Depression and Doubt. Good publisher, IVP, InterVarsity Press. And she names these seven individuals throughout church history 
and gives a little bit of insight that there are Christians that do suffer with this. It's not just a, a failure. It's not just a lack of prayer. It's not some spiritual weakness of some kind. Yes, Elijah took his eyes momentarily off God, but God still met him with his love and his compassion. Do you want to know the seven? First one will surprise you. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Hannah Allen, David Brainard, William Cowper, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and Martin Luther King Jr. And listen to what Spurgeon said. Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereupon. He founded Spurgeon's College, a great Baptist college in London. He wanted those young men, it was young men in those days, to know that this might be part of their experience. That younger men, he says, might not fancy that some strange thing had happened to them when they become for a season possessed by what he calls melancholy. So don't feel guilt and shame if you struggle with this. There's a clinical type of depression which needs chemical treatment. It needs drugs to help it. So there's this for Elijah, there's this inner emptiness and barrenness, the wilderness experience. I just list these, uh, depleted energy levels. The sense of humor is often diminished and replaced with self-pity. Negative thoughts and feelings might be completely pervasive. And in, certainly in Elijah's case, a renunciation, a giving up on responsibility for self and for any hope of the future. In verse 10 he says, I'm the only one left. He's lost his perspective. Now I'm really close now, because I can see it on people's faces, to fulfilling that thing that I longed would not happen. Blimey neck, Clive, this is depressing. For goodness sake, give us some good news. And do you know what? It is about good news. One of the most wonderful things I've seen today was two little girls right on the front row with t-shirts on that said, love and adventure. What a great message for us, love and adventure. But I was sobered by a very courageous sister in Christ who at the end of the first service came and shared her testimony of wrestling with clinical depression and how she wasn't going to let it have the victory. So brave, so wonderful rooted the, the whole story in reality. So here's the good news. There's deliverance for Elijah. There's a new determination for Elijah. There's consequences of God's love meeting him right where he needs God's love to meet him. God's compassion to engage him right where he needs his compassion. Perhaps his lower point is at the end of, of verse 4, where he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Do you know, God never did take Elijah's life. Do you know how I know that? I'm going to go to 2 Kings, chapter 2 and verse 11, and preface before we all sing one of my favorite songs that is usually sung at Twickenham Stadium, okay? As they were walking along, this, by the way, is Elijah and Elisha, and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. He never died. God took him to heaven alive. Isn't that wonderful? And you know that song that's often sung at Twickenham? Based on that verse, join in with me, because you don't want me to sing it on my own. Swing low, sweet chariot, 
coming for to carry me home. And we'll stop there because the, uh, the Irish, the Scots, and the Welsh might not be too pleased with me. But he's taken to heaven by the same loving God who sent the angel. But that's not the end of the story. If you look at the picture behind me, I think this is a consequence. Anyone recognize what's depicted in that piece of art? Just shout it out if you know what it is. Yep. The transfiguration. The transfiguration. And who's there with Jesus and the three disciples who see Jesus transfigured on this mountain? Elijah and Moses. Imagine Elijah and Moses. There they are in heaven. And Jesus, the Son of God, still with the nail marks in his hands. His resurrected body in some mysterious way. At the right hand of the Father, he comes up to Moses and Elijah and says, Come with me. We're going down to planet Earth. Now, if Captain Kirk ever says that, don't go with him. Because whoever Captain Kirk from Star Trek's, uh, uh, what was the ship called? The Enterprise. If you go down to Earth with Captain Kirk, you're not coming back. He's the only one coming back. But with Jesus, there's always hope. And the transfigured Jesus is described by the Father as my one and only Son. And the simple advice is this, listen to him. They're already looking to him. The Father says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And from that, those disciples would have been strengthened. Now, Elijah, as he's ministered to in the wilderness, gains new strength. And as you'll see next week when Chris unpacks that, he's going to get a new commission, a fresh commission to do ministry slightly differently. That's for Chris to cover, not me. But in verse 10, God asks him this searching question. It's not a cruel question, but it's a searching question. Here it is, verse 10. What are you doing here? And I think God wants to ask us that question in some cases. I'm going to look right to the camera now because this morning, and I told Kay this in our prayers before the first service started, this morning I had a very clear sense of somebody at home crying as I make this point. That you are facing challenges, the journey is too much for you, and the God who loves you compassionately as you deal with it with stoicism wants to say to you, what are you doing here? Please let me give you help. And I'm pretty confident that that person can't even talk to the other person that's with them. It's too painful. It's too difficult. What are you doing here? The transfigured, crucified, resurrected, soon coming Jesus Christ loves you and can set you free. Give you new hope for the future. So I want to close with this. It's tough living in a land of idols. So what should our, our response be? Just to do what the Father told those disciples when Jesus was transfigured. To look to Jesus and to listen to Jesus. And I want to I finish with a, with a picture which I hope doesn't sound glib and I hope it doesn't trivialize the depths of the darkness of difficult caves that some people might be in. Now, not everyone here has probably flown on, a, on an aircraft, but probably most people have. And have you ever noticed that when you leave good old UK, which almost inevitably is full of cloud cover, grey clouds, have you noticed that when the plane takes off eventually, it breaks through the cloud cover and, and you look as if you're looking down on a silver carpet? Have you, have you seen that? 
Because the plane takes you above the clouds. And Jesus can take you above those clouds, just like that brave sister in Christ this morning. Still battles, but won't give in. She's got determination and hope in Jesus. She still is helped by the doctors and the, and the medication, but she's got hope in Jesus. I want to pause there. I want to pray a brief prayer, and then I want to hand back to Kay so that we have an opportunity to respond to God. But whoever it is at home watching online, please give yourself an opportunity to respond. If you want to talk to me, whether I know you or not, please get in touch. I'll get in touch with Kay or Chris, and we'll come and pray with you. Let's pray. Just be quiet for a moment. Father, you know the hearts, the minds, the lives of every man and woman here, of every man and woman watching online. You know their hopes and their fears, their wrestles and their struggles. And you love them. Father, just before this service started, somebody gave to me a verse from Psalm 118. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord, and he brought me into a spacious place. Verse 5 of Psalm 118. Father, I pray now, would you bring those who are hard-pressed into a spacious place? Would you help them in shedding their tears to cry them in your presence? For you store our, our tears in a bottle, according to a psalm elsewhere, and you list our tears on a scroll. They are an eloquent prayer, Lord. So help your people with your compassion, as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond with a beautiful um, song in just a moment, but um, I want to invite you, if you would like prayer, to come forward during that time, if that's right for you, or perhaps with the person you're with, um, if you would like prayer. I, I'm always struck with the story of Elijah, how God met his physical needs, that he was exhausted, he'd had enough, and I wonder if that's you this morning, and you're like, God, I've just had enough. And God comes to us in that moment, and he knows exactly what we need. And I think the thing that really struck me is something different in every service. The second service, this service, it's God's compassion that met Elijah in his depression. And I wonder if you're sitting there saying, I've just had enough, God. And God's saying, go to sleep. Give your body a rest. Eat properly. Have a drink. Look after yourself. And I'm here. And I just wonder if uh, today you just need a touch of God's compassion in the place that you're in. And we'd love to pray God's compassion over you if that's what you need. So as we sing, we sing about the deep love of our Father for us. Perhaps that's for you. Perhaps just in your seats, receive his love again. Perhaps come and um, we'll pray God's love over you in whatever situation you're in. Thanks to you.
give you thanks and praise that you have made the way, that you have bridged the gap, the great chasm of divide between us, that we, are, we can become so close to you because of your grace, because of your own suffering, that you knew what it was like to be human, but yet you conquered. You are our great high priest and intercessor who knows what it means to be like us. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the Desperation, I turn to heaven. 